good to be up here again every time I'm rostered to preach I get sick sick naturopaths are good testimony isn't it lots of lack of sleep this last week and a couple of very sick customers so I've got a bit of a tickle if I catch my throat please forgive me and I promise I'll treat you better than I'm practicing in naturopathy so welcome everybody if you haven't been here before really good to see you and for those just about to go to holiday a parting message I'm speaking today on satisfaction And we've got a reading from John's Gospel, chapter 4, which we'll go through. So anybody who knows me with preaching knows that I like to start with definitions. And there's lots of definitions of satisfaction. Simply, it really means to be fulfilled. It comes from an old word, sated, to be full. Like when you've eaten a meal and your tummy's really full. To be sated. And this morning I'm going to look at three examples of fulfilment, people looking for fulfilment. And out of those three examples of people, only one of them succeeded. We're going to look at a rock star. Not many of those in the Bible, so obviously that's a current example. We're going to look at a king from the Bible and then we're going to look at a woman. And then after that we're going to talk about what this means for you and for me. So let's look at these examples because they teach us lots about satisfaction. The first one is the rock star. This is from Mick Jagger, lead singer of the Rolling Stones. He didn't write the song, his mate did, but he sung it, and he's still singing it. They've been going for 45 years, I think, this band, one of the longest ever bands, the Rolling Stones. This is his all-time top hit. His personal worth, $642 million. Multiple relationships. He's never held back, and neither have any of the members of his band. They've all got stuck into life as hard as they can go at it. And this is his all-time top sing, I can't get no satisfaction. I can't get no satisfaction. Because I try and I try and I try and I try, I can't get no, I can't get no, I can't get no satisfaction. No satisfaction, no satisfaction, no satisfaction. I kind of, when I think that through, I think that's a bit of a haunting cry for humanity. That's what happens in our society to pretty well everybody. No matter how hard we try, and Mick Jagger's succeeded with a lot of things in this world, massive wealth. He hasn't held back with um, friendships with women, into drugs, beautiful cars. I think he's even got a knighthood now as far as I believe, Sir Mick Jagger. He's had it all, but he's still singing. He can't get no satisfaction. This is his all-time top hit. It resonates, doesn't it? It's such a simple, silly song, really. But it's so true and so profound and and it just resonates. People click with it because I think that it harmonises with how they feel inside. So there's one person looking for satisfaction, still singing it, still looking for it as far as I know. The second person's from the Bible. This was King Solomon, the third king of Israel, around about 3,000 years ago. He was greater in riches and wisdom than all the other kings of the earth. He had, wait for it, 700 wives have royal birth, not just common women, but royal women, and 300 concubines. He didn't hold back, did he? In fact, he says in Ecclesiastes, just an offhand comment, I had a harem, I had this and I had a harem. He certainly did, didn't he? But he said, anything I wanted in Ecclesiastes, I would take. I denied myself no pleasure. Everything was meaningless. A chasing after the wind, nothing was gained under the sun. 
What a sad cry from the king of all the earth. There was no one wiser or greater or richer or with more glory than King Solomon. He prayed to God for wisdom and he had it at the start, stunning wisdom. And then he disobeyed God and married all these women and went after these women and they turned his hearts away from God and he ended up worshipping other gods. And this was his sad comment. Everything was meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Nothing was gained under the sun. Two examples, one current, one from 3,000 years ago, and now the subject of today, a simple woman in John chapter 4. So I'm just going to read through this fairly long reading. Feel free to read along or otherwise look on the board. John chapter 4, verse 4. Now he, that is Jesus, had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You're a Jew, and I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, You have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, Go call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, you are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you've had five husbands and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have said, just said, is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you're a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain. She's talking about Mount Gerizim just nearby there. But you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father, neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you don't know, what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshippers will worship the Father in the Spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshippers the Father seeks. God is Spirit. And his worshippers must worship in the spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah called Christ is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. Just then his disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking with a woman. But no one asked him, what do you want or why are you talking with her? 
Then leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? They came out of the town and made their way toward him. It's the end of our reading. Now what I'm going to do is just go through four little parts about that reading and tease it apart. Firstly, I'm going to talk about the woman, and then about the Messiah, and then about their meeting, and then about the impact. What did that actually mean for her? So firstly, the woman. This was a woman. Now that's at a time when the typical male Jewish prayer was, Blessed are you, Lord our God, ruler of the universe, who has not created me a woman. They were regarded as second-class citizens. Along with that prayer went, you haven't also made me a slave and you haven't made me a Gentile. And there's another one which says, you haven't made me a beast. All sort of put down in this lower level. The men were on top of the pile. Thank you, God, you haven't made me a woman. Women weren't regarded very well, obviously, in that day. Not only was she a woman, bottom of the pile there, but she was from Samaria. This was a breakaway nation of mixed race, Jews and Assyrians mixed together. They were usually very much despised by the Jews and they were shunned. The Jews were allowed to have dealings with them in that they could do business interactions. They could go into the town and buy food. They could walk through Samaria, but they weren't to have personal relationships with Samaritans. That was the issue. So here's not only a woman, but she's also a hated Samaritan. She's drawing water at noontime. Now, that's not the normal time. The women of the town was their job. That's not the normal time they came to draw water. It was usually at dawn and at dusk. They'd all come together and draw water and catch up as females like to do, network together, chat about things, catch up and draw the water and have a bit of friendship. There's no other women here and it's the middle of the day. That says to me that she was coming because she was either embarrassed or she was shunned. She didn't have friendships. She didn't have mates or companions. And she was a woman with multiple relationships, five husbands, and this is probably why she was shunned. We don't know the reason she had five husbands and now in another relationship. She could have been due, due to those husbands dying, or in those days they could easily divorce a woman. they just say, I just divorce you and you're gone, for whatever reason they wanted. Or it could have been because she was a sinner and she was going from one man to another. We're not actually told, and that's probably not important. What is important is that she had a series of failed relationships and she was very broken by those and she was shunned by the other people. She was very, very alone. So here she is, a lonely woman from a hated race, no friends, unable to hold a good relationship or marriage together. And she was probably very unsatisfied and longing for a relationship. So that's the woman in the interaction. There's two people in this interaction and the other one is the Messiah. Here's Jesus. He's been on this massive walk. There was a longer way the really strict Jews would go around Samaria. They wouldn't even dirty their feet in Samaria. But Jesus was walking through Samaria. It was still a three-day walk from where he was going to where where he'd come from where he was going. And so he was tired. The, The word there really is exhausted. Jesus was absolutely had it. He was really exhausted. He probably didn't have the energy to go into the town. And he was very, very thirsty as well. What does that tell me about this man called Jesus, the one we worship today? He was actually a human. He truly was a man. He was born of a woman, Mary. He truly was a physical man. Next, Jesus spoke 
to this woman of Samaritan, this woman, this shunned, lonely, broken sinner of a woman. And that tells me about Jesus, that not only is he human, but he cares for the broken. He cares for the vulnerable. Jesus reaches out to those who are down. He already knew about all of her personal life and failures. How could have he known? Because he's omniscient. That's one of the words that describes God. He knows everything. There's nothing hidden from his eyes. He knows about you and me. He knows about our past, about our current life and what's going to happen in the future. There's nothing hidden from him. And despite him knowing all about this woman, about all of her failures and her loneliness, he still wanted to speak with her. That really touches my heart. Jesus wants to connect with individuals and meet their needs. Not only does he know, not only is he a man, not only is he omniscient, but he really wants to connect with us as broken people. And finally, Jesus helped her to understand true worship. That's a spiritual relationship, and he revealed himself also as God. So Jesus there, where he said, I am he, those words, I am, really mean the word Jehovah. And the word Jehovah briefly explained is the one who was and always was, the one who is and always is, the one who will be and always will be. That's really behind the words I am when Jesus said that there. So he was revealing himself to her. He was not only human and caring, but he was also God. And despite him having all of those qualities, he wanted to come together and connect with her individually. So here's the woman meeting the Messiah and what actually happens at the meeting itself. <clears throat> the place was very relevant at Jacob's well. It's about 41 metres deep and it made water for about 2,000 or so years up to then. Now, it wasn't from a spring. That's what they called living water. A well that was fed by a spring was called living. That's why Jesus is talking about living water in part. He's sort of playing on words there. It was a still well. It came from rain and from water coming through the rocks, gradually percolating there. And so it provided just a perfect context. There was no mistake with Jesus being at this well to have this conversation about water with this woman. He knew what was going to happen. It was perfect, perfect context. And that tells me that Jesus knows how to meet people where they are. In their individual situation, he's relevant to us where we are and whatever's happened in our life, he's relevant and he can be there and he can come to us and he can help us in our need. It was a personal meeting that was just the woman and Jesus. And there comes a time in our life if we want relationship with God where it needs to become personal, where there is nobody else involved, it's just us and God and there's this interaction going on between us and God. It was a conversation and interaction. Jesus overcame all of those barriers that nobody else wanted to overcome with this woman to show interest and talk with her. There has to actually be a meeting place for Jesus to enter into a relationship with us, a meeting time. There has to be a situation where we come together to meet the Lord. It involved the truth. There was the truth about the woman's life that came to the front when they talked about the husband issue. But it was also about the truth about Jesus. The fact that he could give the living water a relationship with him and that he was the I am, the Jehovah, the only one who could help her in her situation. And it's really interesting to watch her change her view on Jesus. When there's an interaction between us and Jesus and we admit the things that are true about us, we come close to Jesus and we learn about him. It changes our perspective on him. 
At the start, she said, you're a Jew and I'm Samaritan. You're a Jew. Then she called him sir. The next thing, she called him prophet. And lastly, to the town, she said, is this the Messiah? So as she spent time with Jesus, she learnt more about him. And it changed her attitude towards him. And it changed the way she approached her friendship with him. And finally, the people from the town came out and they said, this is the saviour of the world. So the woman, the Messiah, the meeting, and now the impact. The woman suddenly realises that Jesus is supernatural. He knows all about her. She realises he's the true living water. Give me this water, sir, that I can drink and not have to come here again. She realises he's the Messiah and able to meet her needs. And she finds her satisfaction in a relationship with him. The woman then runs to the city to spread the good news. And the other verses, 39 to 42, so many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony that he told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with him, and he stayed two days. And because of his words, many more became believers. They said to the woman, we no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this man really is the saviour of the world. So there's the impact, not only in this woman's life, but her life changed, and she reached out. Suddenly she's not hiding away from people. She's actually broadcasting, and some of the versions give the true context. She went and told the men of the city. In those days, men wouldn't, if they walked down the street, their wife or girls were behind them. They wouldn't even talk to them in public. They were ashamed of them. That's how low women were treated. And she goes here, no longer is she not ashamed, she goes and she broadcasts it to the actual men of the city. And they believed her testimony, and she became this vibrant witness to Jesus. He really changed this woman's life significantly. And a lot of them came to Jesus as a result, the saviour of the world. Now, a bit of theology. We're asked not to give too much heavy theology here. We don't want to get into the heavy nitty-gritty that makes, us try and, um, makes it confusing for us. But there's some basic truths here that I just want to tease out because what makes it true that a relationship with Jesus can truly change us inside? What is it? What is the underlying truth that makes it relevant for us to catch up with Jesus and to have our lives changed, to come to him and to have an interaction with him? How can he actually offer these things? Verse 10 talks about the gift of God. John 3.16, we just heard this while we're having communion. So beautifully sung. Thank you this morning. It's just absolutely beautiful. God so loved the world, he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. <clears throat> Woman, if you knew the gift of God, the gift of God is eternal life and the gift of God is eternal life through the gift of his son, Jesus Christ. This supernatural one, this Messiah, this one who was sent from God and came to earth, he lived truly as a man and he actually showed by his life that he was the son of God. And he went to the cross willingly to take the punishment for our sin, for God to lay his judgment for our sin on him so that the punishment could be paid and our sin could be taken away. And God willingly gave his own son up to that punishment to take the judgment for our sins so that we could go free from our broken lives and all of our sin. Verse 10, who is it? who it is that asks you, this man, the Jew, the Messiah, the Saviour. The historical account of Jesus really is actually accurate. 
There are many other historians from the time Jesus was alive. And by his life, the miracles and wonders and signs that he did, healing the blind, causing the deaf to hear, raising dead people, helping cleanse lepers and people who couldn't walk, healing them, all these stunning miracles Jesus did, the point of those was to show that he truly was the Son of God. This is the one who asks you about the living water. If you don't want to believe that, the truth of his death and resurrection is absolutely unquestionable. In those days when Jesus was here, there needed to be two or three witnesses to something to make it stand up in a law court. There were over 500 people who saw Jesus alive after he had died and risen again. Massive amount of witnesses that Jesus truly did die and that he rose again. The truth about Jesus' life, his death and resurrection, proves that he is the Son of God and that these things about him are totally true. In verse 14, it talks about eternal life. What is eternal life? John mentioned it this morning. What is eternal life? We often think about it in the future when we've left this life and we reach heaven. And while that's true, eternal life is here and now. Eternal life is relationship with God. This is eternal life. We read in the New Testament that they might know you and Jesus Christ whom you've sent, that they might know you. And that is the knowledge of a man and a woman in an intimate relationship in a marriage where the two become one. That is eternal life where we are made one with God. Our sins are taken away. We're brought into true living family relationship with God. We become his children. He becomes our father. That is what eternal life is. And that can be enjoyed right here, right now. Any of us who are believers in Jesus Christ this morning, who have come to him in our brokenness and he's taken our sin away, we have this eternal life now. And when our physical life stops, the eternal life will continue forever and ever in heaven and with him. In verse 23, it talks about worship. What is worship? The word means kneeling down and kissing. That's an interesting concept. We think of worship of just lifting the Lord up, and that's part of it. But the truth about worship is there's a lowering of ourselves before him and an elevating of God, realizing that he's greater than us, that he is God and we are not, that we are broken and we can't do anything about it. And he is the only one who can offer us forgiveness of sin and eternal life. And relationship with God, there's a lowering of yourself. There's a coming to an end of ourselves, a repenting and turning away from all we are and all we've done and resting in the finished work of Jesus Christ. But it's not just that, it's affection as well. God wants us in relationship with himself. There's something in the heart of God that gives him pleasure with an actual intimate relationship with us where there's a relationship of affection and appreciation And we appreciate him. And that's what worship is. And this woman's talking about worship. It should be on Mount Gerizim or should it be in Jerusalem? I don't know. And he's saying, no, it's not a place. It's actually a life. It's actually spirit. And it's true. And it's this relationship, this eternal life with God. So that's what the spirit and truth means. It's as opposed to the place. So he was pulling her mind away from the place of worship to a state of worship and a truth of a life it's wrapped up with God as one. So that's a rock star and a king and a woman. The impact on her life and her friends' lives as well and the life of the city as it all came together. What about us? This is where it gets a bit more personal. 
Now, it doesn't matter who we are. This woman was a hated race, a hated gender, and she'd certainly mucked her life up. It wasn't a fulfilling, satisfying life. <clears throat> no matter who we are and what we've done, Jesus wants to meet us in the context of our life. And he wants to have us admit our sin and need and our inability to resolve them. He wants to reveal himself to us as the true Son of God. And he wants to offer himself as God's gift to us as Saviour. He wants to take away that sin we have and all of our brokenness in our lives and take us into eternal life and relationship with himself. Now remember the rock king, Mick Jagger. Excuse me. I can't get no satisfaction. I try and I try and I try and I try and I try. Kind of sounds like addiction. I just want to talk about addiction for a minute. John mentioned this a few weeks ago. An addiction really is a symptom. It's that lonely symptom of a heart that needs relationship with God and it's trying to find it somewhere else. It's that thirst coming back to draw the water again and again and again and getting thirsty. When we talk about addiction, we usually think of the shameful addictions, the ones that everybody wants to hide. The gambling, the drink, maybe the drugs, maybe the pornography, all the things that we kind of think, hmm, we don't want anybody to know about those, do we? But it's also not only those, it's the addiction to winning the argument, having the last say, the next business deal, being powerful, being popular. It's those things we keep coming back to where we're trying to replace and get some satisfaction, trying to replace this inner hunger we have for something better and deeper, the hunger we have for living water. And it's a hunger created with us since we've fallen away from God's image in the Garden of Eden. And the only thing that can fulfill that hunger is relationship with God himself. That is the true living water, eternal life and relationship with God. And don't we go seeking for it in other places. We try and we try and we can't get no satisfaction. That's the sad human experience, the sad cry of all of us. And it doesn't matter who we are, we all have our hidden addictions and our shameful things that we've done or do. And God wants to bring us away from that because really they're just a symptom of the hunger in our hearts for a relationship with God. Whether we don't even know God and Jesus is our saviour as yet, or whether we do and we're a believer and we're falling and we're walking away from God and we're not living in relationship with himself. And this really convicts my heart. I don't make out I'm up here today having got it all together. It's easy to think a preacher's got it together because they're sharing the word of the Lord, but all of us suffer from this. All of us suffer from seeking other things to fulfil our heart and our heart's need for a relationship with God. So no matter who you are today, no matter what's happened or has been in the past or is happening in your life, I think this story has some relevance. Jesus is the living water and he's the only one who can fulfil our need. He's the only one who can take away that desire and quench our thirst for something better and something real. He meets us where we are exactly where we are in our situation. He wants us to have that revealed to himself, to come to him and to go low and to bow and to admit our need, to lift him up and turn to him in in affection instead of to other things. 
He wants to reveal himself so that we change our attitude. Not only is he Jesus of the Bible, but he's Jesus the Lord. He's Jesus, my personal saviour. He's my friend and I am a child of God. That's what he wants to bring us to. And he wants to take away our sin and he wants to fulfil us with himself. But we need to, like the woman, accept that Jesus is who he said he is, the I am, the true son of God. We need to admit our sin. We need to turn away from it and rest in Jesus' finished work. And in that, we need to find relationship with himself and be restored and satisfied with him. It's interesting, as humans, we never will be truly satisfied, will we? We have physical cravings. We have thirst, says he with a cup of water. We have all of these things that we keep coming back to, legitimate things. But legitimate or not legitimate things that we're seeking after, they'll all be taken away one day and we'll be in the presence of God and we'll be fully satisfied. I'd just like to talk to you about my brother-in-law, Tim, who died about two and a half weeks ago. I've just come back from his funeral in Adelaide. He was 64. Tim had a stellar career. He was an engineer, absolutely amazing guy. He overcame lupus when he was in his teens, not expected to live past 20. He went on to do university, got a degree in engineering. He became very well known in his field. And he worked all over the world, some stunning projects. He was a project um, engineer over in some classified areas over in Scotland in some submarine docks over in Scotland for the Navy over there. He worked in Hong Kong on the new airport that was built over there. More recently, he was living over in Dubai as a project engineer. He had a glittering career. He was very well respected, very good at what he did. He's very successful, not only career, he had a beautiful home in the Adelaide Hills, three acres, this gorgeous big home, four lovely children and a wife, my sister, who adored him. He had real respect in the Brethren churches that he moved in as a good preacher. He had the most amazing stentorian, I use that, love, love that word for Tim's voice, this booming loud voice, you'd stand next to him and just, he'd just make the windows shake as he sang next to you. Great bloke, so much going for him. Nine years ago, Tim got cancer. He got non-Hodgkin's lymphoma and he fought it bravely through chemo. Came through, went away. He went over to Dubai working over there and then it came back. And in the end, Tim had lost so much. He couldn't work anymore. He'd lost an eye. Cancer and the um, infection with it had eaten out his optic nerve. He'd lost an eye. He had a glass eye. In the end, he lost an ear. And that huge voice was nothing but a whisper anymore. He lost his sight. He lost his hearing. He lost his voice. He lost his career. And in the end, he lost his family. He had to say goodbye. There's this poignant photo at the funeral of him in his hospital bed reaching a hand down and a little granddaughter sitting on the ground reaching up them just touching hands. But they had to say goodbye. The day before he died, his, um, his son, my nephew, up here in Queensland had his last Skype consultation and they just simply had to say goodbye. And Tim passed away and nothing went with him. He lost it all. Everything that he had thirsted after and achieved in his life was gone. There was only one thing that continued over into the next life with Tim and that was his relationship with God. That's all that counts in the end, really. 
is this relationship with God. What we're talking about is stunningly important. And because we can't see it, because it's a spiritual relationship, we kind of forget about it, we don't think about it much, and we just get caught up with these physical things. The next image we want to look at, the next beer, the next scroll of Facebook to see what else is going on. We just get caught up in this physical world where our bodies are interacting with these things around about it, trying to seek fulfilment. But ultimately, the most important thing of all is this spiritual relationship with God through his son, Jesus Christ. That's what he offered this woman, and that's what he offers us today. I have one more slide to finish. There's a verse in the Bible, and it says, As for me, I will behold your face in righteousness. I shall be satisfied when I awake with your likeness. That's where Tim is now. He's in the presence of God. He probably thinks, why did I fight for so long? This is fantastic. He's looking on the face of Jesus Christ and he's singing in that stentorian voice, I'm sure. He's with God. He's with Jesus Christ. The relationship is absolutely one and fulfilled and complete. It's the only thing that will carry over. There's a, um, an invitation in the Bible, Revelation 22 and 17, and it says here, this is the last, almost the last words of the Bible. <clears throat> Excuse me. The Spirit and the Bride say, Come, let anyone who hears this say, Come. And let him that is thirsty or a thirst come, and whosoever will, let him take the water of life freely. That verse there is another invitation to take hold of Jesus Christ in relationship with God. Excuse me. It says, Everybody who's thirsty, come. And the Bible teaches us clearly that we're all thirsty, we need relationship with God. But it says, whosoever will come. And it ends up coming down to our will in our relationship with God. We need to stop and spend time getting to know Jesus Christ, whether we are not a believer or we are. And we need to learn that this Son of God, this Messiah, wants to be with us where we are and meet us to take our sin away, to clear it away, and to form an intimacy with Himself where He alone can satisfy our need now and forever. And it involves our will. This woman yielded her will. She trusted in the Lord. It doesn't sound to me with respect to him that Mick Jagger still has. And how about all the rest of us? Have we yielded our own will to God? That's the invitation we all have today, whether we believe is struggling with sin or our lives and dissatisfaction or whether we haven't come to God. We urge you to come to God today. That old-fashioned hymn there, I Christ in thee my soul hath found and found in thee alone. The peace, the joy I sought so long, the bliss till now unknown. I sighed for rest and happiness. I yearn for them, not thee, but while I passed my Saviour by his love laid hold on me. Now none but Christ can satisfy. I'd love Mick to find that out. May we all find it out too. There's no, <clears throat> none other name for me. There's love and life and lasting joy, Lord Jesus, found in thee. Tim's there. But we also can be there even in our life here today. It's a good reminder to come back to the Lord and sit on the well with him and just spend some time sharing, reading the Bible, praying to him, listening to what he's got to say to us through the Bible. And as we do so and we develop in this relationship with him, that's where we'll find satisfaction, true satisfaction for our thirsty, thirsty lives. I pray that God will really bless you. And I ask that he'll bless me as well in this, that I learn the lesson daily as well to come back to him and drink of this water of life until we cross 
over into the other side and it's all wrapped up when we see him face to face and we're truly satisfied. Thank you all for listening. might just close in prayer. <clears throat> Father God, thank you for your word. Thank you for the wisdom of the Bible. So easy to put it aside and get caught up with other things. We really ask for help this day that you'll touch our hearts with your word and that you'll fill us, Father God, with a desire to follow after Christ, to follow hard after him and to enjoy and enter this relationship, this eternal life, this spiritual relationship with him even every single day until we're enveloped in eternity. May you bless your word to our hearts today. Help us in our addictions, help us in our cravings and help us to remember again and again that Jesus Christ is the true answer to it all. And as we come close to you, may we learn of him, realise who he is, have our brokenness taken away and bow in worship and affection towards you until we reach glory. We pray for anybody here who don't know the Lord. Bring them to yourself. Take their sin away. And let them find life in Jesus Christ, we pray. Thank you and bless you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks, David. Uh... We're just going to sing this last song. While the song starts, as we sing the first verse or so, offering buckets will come around. Please give as you would like to. Don't feel obligated. If you're not prepared, no problem at all. Just let it pass. I believe uh, Liam will tell us when to stand. And please remember coffee and chat afterwards. Thank you. <laughs>